Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for today. Thank you for another time in your presence as we discuss your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for our utterance in the name of Jesus. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you guide my thoughts, of God. And I'll say exactly the things you want me to say this evening. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Okay. So this evening we are talking about um, lessons that we can learn from the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, and it's going to be... Um, just, are, you, are you able to enable um, sharing for me? And it's going to be um, a three-part series. So today is the first, um, the first installment of the series. Um, um, I believe that as we get ready for Christmas, um, there's there's a lot of things that we can learn about the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, and so we're just gonna take a little time um, in our midweek services to discuss. Some of the things that we can learn as we read um, the um, the birth story of Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm just going to start. Uh, first of all, I, I I'm going to talk about some of the prophecies. Um, okay, I'm I'm going to talk about some of the prophecies. Steve, um, could you please enable sharing? Some of the prophecies from the Old Testament. We're going to begin from some of the prophecies um, in the Old Testament about the, the birth of Jesus Christ. And then um, we'll continue from there. So one of the first prophecies that we can see about the birth of Jesus Christ is from the book of Genesis. When... Um, um, when Adam and Eve, um, when Adam fell in, 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 the, in the garden, disobeyed God. And when God was dishing out the punishment to, to the serpent and um, was, was telling them what was going to happen, in Genesis chapter 3, verse, verse 15, God said that I will put enmity between you, between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, when God said, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and said, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed. That seed, when you read the Amplified, refers to a particular person. It, doesn't, it does not refer to the entire generation who are going to come um, through Adam and Eve. But it was referring to a particular person, a particular seed who God was going to put enmity between the serpent and, 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 and that seed. And he said that you and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels and um it is, it's been translated or what this prophecy was what meant was that the enemy was going to or the serpent was going to in so many ways um do things that is going to hurt the 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 the, the man jesus in his form as a man he was going to do so many things that were going to affect that man. That was going to hurt him. And so Jesus was arrested. He was beaten. He was nailed to the cross. But in all those things that the enemy did to Jesus Christ in an attempt, 
to to um, thinking that he was hurting him. He was actually promoting the plan of God. And so this is one of the first um, prophecies about the coming Messiah or about Jesus Christ or about God's plan that he had after the man and the woman fell from grace of disobeyed God in the Garden of Aden. Another prophecy that we see, which is a very popular one, is from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 4, 14. The Bible says, Therefore the Lord himself will give a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, gave this prophecy. And it was so many years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Isaiah gave this prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus Christ, saying that the virgin shall be with a child. And this will be the sign to the people that that was the Messiah, that the virgin was going to get pregnant, the virgin was going to give birth to a child, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. This was one of the prophecies. And this prophecy was given, if you look at the, pro, um, the ministry of Isaiah, then at the minimum, it was 727 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And so this prophecy was given several years before the the birth of Jesus Christ. Another prophecy that we see is from Isaiah chapter 6 verse 9 that for unto us a child is given, unto us a, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so this prophecy is also from prophet Isaiah within the same range when he had, um, when the prophet Isaiah had his ministry. And the last prophecy that I, I'm discussing for today is from My, Micah when it says that, but you but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are the least among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And so this prophecy was also mentioned when the wise men came to, came to the king and they wanted to know where the Messiah has been born or where the king of Israel has been born. This prophecy also came up when the king asked the rulers. And so these were prophecies pointing to the fact that God was going to bring a Messiah. God was going to send somebody who was going to be born by the virgin. And these prophecies were just waiting to come to pass. And the people of Israel were waiting to see the manifestation of this prophecy. The people of the Old Testament didn't know exactly when this prophecy was going to come to pass. Isaiah, who gave this prophecy, didn't know exactly when God was pointing out to and so they were just waiting for the manifestation or for fulfillment of this prophecy. And out of the waiting, there came the 400 years of, of silence, where God was silent. There was no prophecy. There was no divine intervention. It was almost as if that God was not doing anything at that time. And so even though these people had this prophecy, prophecies that there was going to be a Messiah, that he was going to be born by a virgin. Yes came. 100 years came. 200 years came. 300. They were just waiting for the fulfillment of the prophecy. The Israelites went into captivity in, 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 in the Babylonian kingdom. They came back to their land. They were still waiting for God's word concerning the Messiah to come to pass. They saw the Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire. They saw all these empires coming. And this 400 years, the Bible tells us there was no activity of prophets. There was no, there was no um, 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 prophecy. They couldn't hear from God. They didn't hear anything about God. But they knew that in the past, these prophecies have been given. And those prophecies have not been fulfilled yet. And so 
the 400 years of silence which is also called the inter intertestamental period is between malachi and matthew or between malachi and the book of um the book of Ma uh, mark on the book of luke when the ministry of john the baptist was spoken about this 400 years was has been has been called the 400 years of silence and it appeared as if within this 400 years it looks as if god was not doing anything it looks as if there was no there was no activity from god because the i'm sure the people of israel who had the plan uh, or who had the prophecy were still waiting and were thinking what's what's happening or maybe they were they were even considering that maybe this prophecy will never come to pass because they kept waiting they went into captivity they came back and different different empires came and still this the people of israel were hoping that one day there's going to be a messiah who is going to restore the kingdom to israel and kingdoms came and kingdoms went but this prophecy was not coming to pass those 400 years it might look as if God was not doing anything. But those silent years, when you, we, we, from hindsight, when we look back into all the activities that happened within that 400 years, we can confidently say that the silence of God does not mean he's not active. That God's silence does not mean that he's inactive. And so even though in those 400 years, the people didn't hear any prophecy, there was no prophet. God was not, God did not show up in the lives of the people like he used to show up the past 400, how he sent somebody to always talk to the people and always represent him. At that time, the people who even represented God looked as if their lives were not that glorious as it used to be. Because if you looked at the life of Israel before they went into Babylonian captivity, Anytime they turned away from God and then they come back to God, then they are restored. But this time it took so long and nothing was happening. In our lives, when there is silence, we can just look at this 400 years of silence and the things that happened within the 400 years and convince ourselves that even when God is silent, it does not mean that he's absent in our lives. So the silence of God does not mean he's absent. Maybe you are praying about something. Maybe you are waiting on God for something. But the fact that you've not heard anything or you've not seen anything does not mean that God is silent. Just like in this 400 years where there were no prophets, where the people of Israel didn't even know what was going on. But God was still working. God was still working in the people. And God was still waiting for the appointed time for the Messiah to be born. So the prophecies have been given they had, to, they had to wait for so long. They were not seeing the hand of God. They were not seeing the prophecies come to pass. I'm sure some people might have even forgotten the fact that there was going to be a Messiah. Because generations came and generations died. And people passed on the hope of a Messiah one day coming to their, to their children. Telling them that this is the prophecy we've heard of old from our fathers. The people who, hold on, who held on to this prophecy in their lifetime... They didn't see that happening, but God was faithful to his word. In the midst of the 400 silent years, when we saw kingdoms coming and all other things, wars, so many battles, God was still working and preparing the grounds for the birth of the Messiah. And so God's silence, when God is silent in our life, it does not mean that God has abandoned his purpose. Whatever God is doing in our lives, 
we can trust him that even when he is silent, he is still working behind the scenes to bring to pass his purpose. In the 400 silent years where the people did not hear about God, did not hear, there, was, there were no visions, there were no prophecies, there were no divine interventions. They might have even thought that God had probably abandoned his plan of bringing a Messiah. But when God is silent in our lives, when God is silent in his church, it does not mean that God has abandoned his plan concerning his church or his purpose concerning his church. When I was thinking about this um, about three days ago, and I was thinking about the state of the church, and I know we have been praying about the state of the church after COVID, how the church has been impacted. And I compare this to the 400 years of silence. I know that God has not abandoned his church. God has a plan for his church. And in the midst of everything we see now and how the church looks like looks like now, I believe God is getting ready to birth something new from the church. And all of us just have to be ready and tuning into what God is doing. Because just like those 400 years when the people thought that it looks like God will never, never show up. It looks like God's plan will never come to pass. God still came through and his ultimate beautiful plan came to pass. His permanent salvation for man came to pass. After those 400 silent years where people thought that there was no hope. And so in the midst of what the church is going through now, I know, I believe that God is going to birth something new from the church. And we can learn from those years of silence and apply those years of silence to our lives. That even when we experience silence, a period of silence in our lives, whether it looks like there's inactivity, whether it looks like God is not doing anything in our lives, we can trust that God is about to birth something new that is going to be permanent and that is going to be glorious in our lives. So in the midst of, in those 400 years, the Roman Empire came. Now the general language became Greek and the people began to speak Greek. Now the, the hearts of the people in the midst of those 400 years were prepared for the coming Messiah. Because the people had seen wars, they have seen kingdoms. And finally, everybody's heart was yearning for a Messiah, waiting for the Messiah to come. The Messiah that has been promised. And so God used those 400 years to prepare the heart of the people. God was shaping the world into a state that he wanted the Messiah to come and meet at that time. And so God used that 400 years to shape the state of the people and to shape the state of the world. Now, according to history, roads were prepared for the preaching of the uh, for the preaching of the gospel. There, and then there came the religious leaders, the Sadducees, and then the scribes. And there was this contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That created the avenue for the gospel to be preached again. And remember, the people of Israel had gone into captivity for so long. And they were just trying to restore the worship of their God. In the midst of those 400 years, I believe that some of the things, some of the instructions, some of the things that the people before the, the, uh, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity did, some of the people of Israel did before the captivity had been lost. And so the people were still trying to restore the worship of their God. Because they know that their fathers worship God. They know their fathers had several instructions. In the midst of everything that has happened, some of those instructions were lost. 
and the people were trying to restore the worship of their God. And the God ensured that during this time, the conditions were perfect for the birth of the Messiah. And Israel was waiting for the Messiah. And so God's silence in those 400 years were all part of his prophecy, were all part of the plan that he had for Israel. And in our lives, when God seems silent, we should not think, we should not think that God has abandoned us. We should not think that God has abandoned his plan concerning us, or God has given up on us, or God is never going to show up. Even in his church where we don't see all those things that we used to see, it does not mean that God has rejected his church. Christ has said that he will build his church and the gate of hell is not going to prevail over the church. So sometimes when God is silent, the first thing we want to do is to accuse ourselves that maybe we are doing something wrong. Maybe we are not doing something right. And that is why we are not hearing God's voice or that is why we are not seeing God's hand. But when God is silent, it does not mean, it does not always mean that he's angry with us. The, during, those, during those 400 years, the people would have said that maybe we have done something wrong that has caused God to turn his face away from us. But those 400 silent years were all part of God's plan. And so sometimes in our lives, when it looks as if God is silent, it does not necessarily mean that he's angry with us. It does not mean that he does not care about us, even when God is silent. Let's not always turn and accuse ourselves when it looks like we don't see the hand of God because God has everything planned out for us. And so when God is silent in our lives, it does not mean he's angry. It does not mean he does not care. It does not mean that we have done something wrong. It does not mean that he's punishing us for our sins. It does not always mean that he's punishing us for our sins. These are some of the few things we begin to think about when, when God is silent in our lives. We begin to think that maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe he's angry with me. Maybe he doesn't care about me. But the Bible tells us that God cares about every single detail of our lives. I, I, I pray that we will all come to understand the love of God. Because the Bible has described the love of God as being beyond understanding. I think that when we get to understand God's love better, then some of these accusations that we accuse ourselves, we will not... Um, accuse ourselves anymore so sometimes when god is silent it means he's preparing a great miracle in this 400 years the greatest thing that should that ever happened in the history of man is the birth of god the birth of jesus christ god coming in the form of man to dwell with man is the greatest thing that ever happened but it didn't just happen it happened after a long period of silence and so when you are going through a long period of silence be hopeful that god is preparing a great miracle for you and and when you go through a time of silence it could also mean that god is preparing that god is waiting for the opportune time the right time to bring to pass the miracle that he has for you and so when you go through a time of silence don't always think about the four things that i mentioned earlier god's silence is also a demonstration of his love sometimes god keeps quiet in a way to demonstrate love to us the bible tells us about how jesus loved lazarus he loved him so much that when he died he had to wait for three days before he showed up 
and when he came, he resurrected Lazarus. Those three days of silence, people would have thought that Jesus didn't care about his good friend Lazarus. But God was preparing a great miracle for his glory. And so the period of silence, it might be a time that God is preparing a great miracle and he wants to do that in his own time. And he wants to demonstrate his love to you as well. And so God's period of silence might be a demonstration of his love. God's period of silence might also be a demonstration of his confidence in you, that God has confidence in you as a person, as a child who belongs to him. He trusts you that you can handle whatever comes your way. The Bible tells us that we will not be tested beyond our strength. So if you feel like you have been tested for so long, that tells me how God believes in you, that you can face that test. And because God knows that you can take that test, he gave the test to you. And so if you have been tested for so long, if God has been silenced for so long and you don't see his hand, it looks like you don't see the supernatural or you don't see anything, it might mean that God has confidence, so much confidence in you. And that is why he is waiting. And that is why he's taking you through whatever thing that you are going through. Now, again, from the book of Daniel, we know that when there's a period of silence, it might also mean that there is a battle in the realms of the spirit. And in the period of silence, we should not stop praying. We should continue praying because in the book of Daniel, the Bible tells us that God responded to Daniel's prayer right when he started praying. But it had to take 21 days for his prayers to, for the answers to his prayers to be received. So in the in those silence period, when it looks like you are not seeing the hand of God, it looks like God is not responding to you when you call, don't stop praying. Don't just go to bed and say God will do what he wants to do. You have to continue to pray and trust that God is faithful and he will fulfill his promise. It is interesting to know that God gave a promise to Abraham. After the death of Abraham, God still stuck to his promise and made sure it came to pass. Even though Abraham was dead, but God's, God continued to remind the children of Adam that, I'm sorry, the children of Abraham that he had given the, this promise to their father and he was going to fulfill. So God himself came every time there was somebody else, Jacob, God himself will come to Jacob and remind Jacob that I have promised your father that I'm going to do this. And when somebody else came, God, when it was Moses, God came to remind Moses that I've promised Abraham and I'm going to keep to that promise. When Joshua took over from Moses, God reminded Joshua that I have promised Abraham. And so God keeps himself accountable in our lives, keeps himself accountable for his promises. So whatever God has promised, he makes sure that he's faithful. He'll be faithful to that promise and he'll fulfill that promise. So let's trust in the providence of God, even in silence, when we don't hear God's voice, when we don't see God's hand, we can continue to trust him and believe that whatever he has said, he will do it. The book of Galatians chapter 4 tells us that, but when the fullness, when the fullness of the time had come, so all those 400 years of waiting, when people were, were hoping that the Messiah would show up at some point, it wasn't the right time. From the book of Galatians, we learn that when the fullness of time had come, it means when it was the right time for God to do what he was supposed to do, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, 
to redeem those who were under the law that we might be but that we might receive the adoption of son so from the book of galatians we know that christ was not late we know that christ did not come too early but he came at the exact time that god wanted him to come and so the bible says in the fullness of time when the time was ripe in the midst of those silence and they didn't see the kingdoms were coming and people were showing up god was still working waiting for the right time and so whatever promise that we have in in god we should know that when the time is due god will bring it to pass as the bible says in the fullness of time god sent forth his son and that is the incarnation god coming in the form of man god being born as a man and the bible tells us that he was born by a woman and so those prophecies that were given concerning a virgin giving birth came to pass in the in their due time those prophecies concerning the seed of the woman came to pass and he was born under the law he came under the subjection of the law so that he would deliver all of us from the law so god became a man for our sakes and he gave us the nature of god he took our nature and gave us back the divine nature as peter the first peter tells us that god he gave us a divine nature when he took upon he took upon himself the nature of man he became like a man so that he would deliver men from the bondage of the law he took upon himself our nature that we might also receive his nature and so now we go into the story of the birth of jesus christ when jesus was born the bible tells us that the book of the genealogy in matthew chapter 1 the bible says the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham matthew because he was writing to the jewish people trying to point the jewish people his main audience were the jewish people and he was trying to point those jewish people to the fact that jesus is the messiah they have been waiting for and so the jewish people knew that the messiah should come from the lineage of david and that messiah should come from the lineage of abraham and so right from get-go matthew was pointing them to the fact that jesus christ is from the line of david and jesus christ is from the line of abraham and so jesus christ says the book of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham and start with a long um mentioning names of so many people abraham begot isaac isaac begot jacob pointing them down to the husband of mary interestingly in verse 16 it says that and jacob begot joseph the husband of mary he did not say the father of jesus christ but he said the husband of mary of whom jesus was born and so matthew was careful not to say that joseph is the father of jesus christ but joseph is the husband of mary and mary was the one who gave birth to jesus christ now interestingly in this passage we see that every time they are tracing the genealogy it was men who were being mentioned but here we have four interesting women who were mentioned in the lineage of jesus christ and i believe matthew was trying to put a um, put a point across 
because there, there, you will not see any reason why he included the names of this woman, but then to prove a point to the Jewish readers who were reading. Because we see Tamar and we see um, Rahab, or Rahab, we see Ruth, and then we see um, Bathsheba also being mentioned, who was the wife of, um, of Uriah being mentioned. And so um, Matthew was trying to point them, first of all, to the fact that even these two women, that is um, Ruth and Rahab, who are not Jewish people, still are part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. And Matthew, at this point, knowing that Jesus Christ came both to save not only the Jewish people, but also the Greeks as well, points them to the fact that even this, I'm sorry, the Gentiles as well, point them to the fact that even in the lineage of Jesus Christ, there are Gentiles in there. There are people who were not part of the, um, the tribe of Israel, but God included them in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so if anything at all, for, for, for people who are Gentiles, they have some... Um, some claim to the fact that Jesus Christ is also a member of their family or part of them because they have their people in there. And so um, Matthew um, um, gives us the lineage of Jesus Christ and trace it down to, Je um, to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, still pointing to the fact that Jesus was born of Mary, but not necessarily the seed of Joseph, and when you look at Luke's account as well, when Luke also gave the lineage of Jesus Christ, um, Luke traces the lineage of Jesus Christ to, um, through Mary, and does not trace it through um, through Joseph like Matthew Matthew did. Luke's audience as well was different, and Luke had to trace the lineage of Jesus Christ right, right to Adam, who he calls the Son of God. And so Jesus Christ, all generations, Jesus Christ can be traced or can be, can, we can say that Jesus Christ is related to every single human being on earth here because we are all coming from Adam. And so Jesus Christ is also coming from Adam in some form. And so Luke traces the um, genealogy of Jesus Christ to Adam. Writing to the Gentiles, he wants them to understand that we are also part of um, the family of Jesus Christ, or we, all, we are, our genealogy is also linked to Jesus Christ in some form. So, in in the old, in in the tradition or in the culture where the Bible was written, written, the genealogy is a proof of who the person. First of all, to the Israelites, it was a proof that the person was an Israelite, and so Matthew had to trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ to Abraham the father of all, to prove that he's an Israelite and to also trace it, to, to identify the tribe that Jesus Christ come from. He also traced it to also, it was also important to trace the genealogy of a person uh, where we, um, so far as the Israelites were concerned so that you'll be able to identify if the person qualifies for certain religious responsibilities because we knew that, we know that from the Bible, only the Levites could, um, act as priest and so it was important that this genealogy was identified whenever they were talking about somebody now the genealogy of jesus christ proved that he is the seed of abraham 
And God had given Abraham a promise that in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so Matthew was trying to remind the people that the seed that the Bible spoke about, that is the seed. The seed that the Bible talked about concerning Abraham, that in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That seed was Jesus Christ. Matthew again had to trace the genealogy of Jesus Christ to David to prove that the promise that God gave David that there shall always be a king in his house has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And because they all knew that the, the Messiah was going to come from the family of David, it was important for him to point that out as well. The promise of the Messiah was linked to the seed of Abraham and was linked to the seed of David. And so God had to, um, Matthew had to make sure that he um, mentioned that in the genealogy. Two women who were mentioned were not from the commonwealth of Israel as Rahab, who was a Canaanite, Ruth, who was also a Moabite, but was included in the genealogy. We have Bathsheba, we have Tamar as well, who committed adultery, being mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So right from the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we have an idea of grace that the Gentiles were going to be included, that people who seemingly, according to the law of Israel, were sinners, were also going to be included in the plan that God had for his people. Now, coming to the birth story, the Bible tells us, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and she will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, I'm sorry, by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And Joseph, being arose from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth and has firstborn she has brought forth his firstborn son and he called his name Jesus now this is a story that we hear almost every christmas and this is a story that we are very familiar with but today i just want us to take the characters in this story and discuss the characters this is going to be the first part of our series the bible tells us that mary was betrothed to joseph and they were going to, they were making plans to marry as they were making plans to marry then mary was found pregnant with a child and the bible tells us that joseph being a just man not wanting to make her a public example <coughs> i'm sorry <clears throat> so those days when somebody was betrothed to somebody it was as good as marriage even though the marriage ceremony had not happened yet 
it was still as good as married it was a respected relationship that was going to lead to marriage and usually that relationship happened like a year before the marriage itself and so when that happened that joseph was betrothed mary was betrothed to joseph they had plans of getting married they were getting ready to marry mary a young woman like any other young woman was excited was happy looking forward to that day that she was going to walk down the aisle oh sorry about that um so i was saying that mary like any other woman was excited about getting married was getting ready to um walk down the aisle like any other woman and i believe that she probably had sent out invitations to her friends invited them for her big day they had made plans discussed things discussed with her friends and excited waiting for the time that she was going to definitely she was going to walk down the aisle she was going to celebrate <clears throat> she was finally going to celebrate her union with um, her, her wonderful boyfriend that she had found and suddenly as she was making all these plans suddenly god interrupts her plans and god says i need you to do something for me and so you have to put your plans on a hold i think that today we look back and we celebrate mary that she's blessed that she had this wonderful opportunity this wonderful privilege to be the mother of the messiah but before her time this has never happened that somebody has been made pregnant by the Holy Spirit. How was she going to explain this to her friends? How was she going to explain this to her family? That even though I was making plans to marry, I'm now pregnant and the Holy Spirit is responsible. I'm sure most people would think she's crazy. Because at this point, this has never happened. To her close family members, they were going to be disappointed in her. She was going to become an object of mockery. People were going to mock her. That are you serious? You have you might be mad. True for you to why? How can you tell us this? That the Holy Spirit made you pregnant, because Joseph was not responsible for the pregnancy. And those days, if a woman was not um, married and she gets pregnant, she was to be stoned. And so this was her life at risk. This was her plans being suspended for God's plan. God had to suspend Mary's plan. Sometimes in our lives, God is going to interrupt our plans. God, you know that how we always pray for divine intervention. But sometimes instead of divine intervention, we we'll have divine interruption. God will rather interrupt our plans and not necessarily intervene in our plans. Mary had a beautiful plan. Like every other young woman, she just was just hoping that her life would be like every other young woman in Israel. But fortunately for her, her life was not going to be like any other or um, young woman in Israel. <clears throat> and so when it looks as if your life is different from every other people and you know that you are in God's plan, you don't have to be afraid. God came into Mary's, Mary's plans as she was preparing for her wedding, her big day. God just showed up and said, I want you to do something. You are going to. And look at the way that when you read the, book, the account of Luke, look at the way the angel announced it. You are blessed among women. And Mary 
kept I, I believe we're thinking to herself if somebody else if Mary was somebody else we're thinking to herself don't you care about my own plans don't you care about my own happiness I think one of the things that we should get rid of in this dispensation is putting self first because that is definitely one of the things that this our generation doesn't do very well at we put ourselves first in everything but Mary, when she heard what the angel said, according to the account of Luke, she said, be it unto me as you have said. So even though Mary's plans were interrupted by God, Mary still gave into God's plan. She didn't argue according to what, according to the accounts that we have in Luke, Mary didn't argue with the angel. She just submitted to the plan of God. And so sometimes when things do not go the way that you wanted it to go, of course, <clears throat> that our theme is discussing the lessons from this story. And so sometimes when things do not go the way you expect them to go, and God interrupts your plans, you should be willing to submit yourself to God's plans. When God... <clears throat> Bring something new that you were not expecting, something that you were not thinking about. You just want, you just had your th your plans listed out. One, two, three. I'll do this after this, and then do this after this, and I'm going to do this, and after that. And God interrupts that plan. When God interrupts your plan, be willing to subject yourself to God's plan. Be willing to give into God's plan, just like Mary. Mary was just getting ready to marry. She had not. God had not discussed anything about the Messiah with Mary. But one day, God just shows up and says that, I want you to carry the Messiah. And God's plan is always superior than our plans. God's plan is always better than our plans. God's plan will always bring more glory than our own plans. And that is why when God interrupts our own plans, we have to submit ourselves to God's plan and trust Him and believe Him that he's leading us to the right place. He's leading us to the most glorious place that he wants us to be. And just like Mary, I believe that attitude that Mary had to submit herself to God's plan and not argue, not doubt God's plan, but just submit herself and yield that God, if you want any woman to carry the Messiah, then I'm here, I'm going to carry the Messiah. There were so many other young ladies in that generation However, God chose Mary to be the one who carries the Messiah. And today, we are sitting here talking about Mary because she submitted herself to God's plan. If she just said, I'm going to stick to my own plan and still have my normal wedding like any other young lady, today, we wouldn't be talking about Mary. But because she submitted herself to God's plan, that is why we are discussing here today. And so sometimes when God interrupts your plans, as painful as it might look, as unexpected as it might look, maybe you are not prepared. But trust God that when he interrupts your plan, then he has something better for you. Even though Mary had to be subjected to mockery, Mary had to be despised and laughed at, she stand the risk of even losing her life she just trusted God's plan. Said, be it unto me as you have said. And so sometimes when things happen in our lives and we know it is God's hand, 
with his interrupting our own plans. Let's have the heart of Mary that we can also say, Be it unto me as you have planned. Now let's look at God's selection of Mary. God chose Mary, the young woman who was never given birth, to be the career of God. To be the one who was going to bring to pass God's ultimate plan of salvation for mankind. Mary had never given birth. She doesn't know how to take care of children. But God chose her. This convinces me that God does not need aspect when he's bringing to pass his plan. He doesn't need people who have been there or done it before. He just needs a heart that is willing. God didn't choose a mother or an old woman who has carried so many children. Mary was a young woman who didn't have any experience when it comes to taking care of babies. But God chose her because God does not want expect. He does not necessarily need experts to fulfill his plan. And so sometimes you might feel inadequate to fulfill God's plan or to do what God wants you to do. But know that God does not need an expert. God does not need somebody who is so skillful. When he needs a preacher, he doesn't need somebody who is super intelligent and can talk to thousands of crowds. God just needs a heart that is willing to obey and a heart that is willing to yield. From Mary's character, we saw how she just yielded instantly to God's plan. As soon as the angel told her, she just yielded to God's plan. So if we are going to yield our heart or we are going to yield our lives to God, then whatever he intends to do with us, he will do. And so when you feel inadequate in the, in the eyes of God's plan, when, when you are confronted with God's purpose and God's plan, and you feel like you are inadequate, you are not prepared enough, you are inexperienced, trust that God is able to use you to fulfill his, his plan. Mary was an inexperienced mother. Joseph was an inexperienced father. However, God chose them to be the ones who would take care of the Messiah, who would take care of God. What a great privilege that a young and experienced man was going to be the was going to be called the earthly father of God. A young and experienced woman was going to become an earthly father of 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 earthly mother of God. That she carried the baby and she might not carry the hold the head of the baby very well. And this is God in her hands, and she's twisting God in a way that is not good. But God knew all that and said, Yes, I still chose you people to be the ones who carry the Messiah. And so every assignment that God gives us, he will enable us to do it. And so when you feel inadequate, unprepared, when you feel like you cannot do it, you feel like you are not even qualified, that is exactly where God wants you to be. That is even a sign that it is God who is using you. Now, God also chose poor parents. Who didn't have money? These two people were not rich people. If a Messiah was going to be born, if God was going to come on earth, if a king was going to visit any city, then we look for the best hotels for that king. We are going to look for the best hotel for that king. But when the king of the whole world came, he didn't get a hotel. Not a three-star or a five-star hotel. He didn't come to the richest of people. We know that Mary and Joseph were, didn't have money because when they took Jesus to the temple in Luke chapter 2 verse 24, the Bible says, now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem and to present him to the Lord. 
as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. This was what they gave for sacrifice. And in Leviticus, we know that that sacrifice was for poor people. In Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, the Bible says, And if she's not able to bring a lamb, so the preferred sacrifice was a lamb for the purification. But if you cannot afford a lamb, then you will bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. So this was a clear indication that Mary and um, Joseph at that time were broke because they couldn't afford a lamb. And because they couldn't afford a lamb, they bought a turtle dove and two pigeons and brought them. So God did not look for the richest people. No, God did not go to town and look for the richest man who was living in that generation or the richest couple who were living in that generation. But God just picked hearts that were willing to yield. I think that next week we will get into the life of Joseph as well and we'll discuss the hearts of Joseph. That Joseph was willing to yield as soon as the angel said, don't be afraid to take this woman and make her your wife. Joseph yielded to the instruction. Their heart was willing to obey God, no matter the price it was going to cost them. And that is where we should all get to, that we are willing to obey God no matter what is going to cost us. Obeying God meant that Mary was going to be mocked. Obeying God meant that she was going to even risk her life. Obeying God meant that she was she stood the chance of losing her husband to be. Mary considered all these things, and yet she said, "Be it unto me as you have said." And Joseph obeying God meant that her fr- his friends were going to mock him, laugh at him that he was going to be the father of her son who. If you, if you read the book of John, sometimes the Israelites were trying to call Jesus a bastard, that he doesn't have a father. And it, it appeared as if that Joseph was going to be the father of this boy who doesn't have a father. His friends were going to mock him, but he did not think about all those things. But ultimately, what they were all both concerned about was obeying God and following what God has said. And so don't think that you are unqualified for God's use. If God chose parents who were not experts for his for his son when he was coming here on earth, if God chose people who were didn't have much money when he decided to visit this earth, then don't think, no matter the state that you are in now, don't disqualify yourself from God's plan. If you think that you are too old for God to use, then think about Elizabeth, how God during her old age, brought to pass the promise of or the prophecy of somebody who was going to be a forerunner of the Messiah through Elizabeth. When Elizabeth and Zechariah, the Bible says they were past the age, but then God's promise or God's word that they received still came to pass. And so you are not too old for God to use you to bring to pass 
his purpose. If you're thinking that you are too young, then look at the so many young people in the Bible that God has used. Joseph, David. And so God can use any other person. God can use you. So do not disqualify yourself. At no point in your life should you, should you disqualify yourself that God is not able to use you. All you need to do is to be willing to yield to God's plan and be willing to yield to God's promise. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and 29, the Bible says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, not many... Not many noble are called, but God chooses the foolish things of this world to, sh to put to shame the wise. And God chooses the weak things of this world to put to shame that which is mighty. And the base things of this world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things that which are not, to bring to nothing the things which are, that no flesh glory in the presence of God. And so if you feel like you fall into any of this description, that you are not noble, you are not mighty, that you are weak. It seems, that, it seems to you that you are not as wise as compared to the people that you see, then know that you are the right person that God wants to use. So that the reason why God does that is that so that no flesh will glory in his presence, that all the glory will go to God in the end. And so... God can use every one of us, no matter where we are. If God was able to use Mary and Joseph to bring to pass his promise, then God can use us. In the midst of God's silence, we should know that God has not forsaken us. God has not abandoned his plan. He's still committed to bring to pass his plan. He's still committed to fulfill his promise to us. And we can trust him that wherever he's, he's promised to take us to, even as a church, we should, be, we should be hopeful that the state of the church does not mean that God is not active or God is absent in his church. God is still working out something beautiful for the church. And so no matter what happens, Christ has said he will build his church. And we hold on to that word and let's believe it with all our heart that if Christ has said he will build his church, then we know that no matter what is happening now, he's still building his church. So we will end here for um, for today um, because of time. We will um, we'll continue on next week from here. Um, we will look at the story, um, the life of Joseph as well. Um, if there's any question or anything that uh, any contribution, we can please share. Robert, God bless you. It was very powerful, very, um, a lot of good stuff, so much um, information and a lot of um, powerful points. So I just, the, the two things that stood out for me, and I don't know what stood out for everybody else, but the two things that really stood out, actually three, but I'll say two, um, uh, God's silence when uh, God is silent and we're praying for things, uh, what's our posture? How do we handle it? Um, what should we do? Um, you know, sometimes it can be very unnerving 
especially uh, because, you know, even in conversation when you're sitting with your friend and your friend stops talking to you, <laughs> um, you just want to fill in the space with something, right? Yeah. And I think sometimes it could be unnerving. So when God is quiet, it can be very unnerving. Um, and so uh, I think that that's really, really important because it helps us to wait. And uh, that's a big thing I took away was just waiting on God even when he said. So that was powerful. Um, um, the other thing was uh, um, that God can use anybody. Doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter where you come from, your heritage, your culture, tradition, um, abuse, not abused. You brought, you were brought up with a, you know, what they call a silver spoon in your mouth. It doesn't matter. God can use anyone. And I like how you stress the fact that God doesn't need an expert. Mm. Really just wants a willing heart. Mm. So, so um, amongst all the powerful things, I think that those are the two things that I just wanted to highlight because they're, they're so, so important. So God bless you again. Um, I think Pastor Steve, I'll turn over to you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. But Steve, were you going to say something? No, my comment is in the chats. That's it. Okay. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, okay. Amen. Okay. All right. I see that. Okay. All right. Um, so we pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to share your word and uh, to listen. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you ministered to our hearts in so many ways, in so many forms. We pray in the name of Jesus that these words will continue to resound in our heart. In Jesus' mighty name. Give us deeper understanding as we meditate on these words. In the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Father, I God richly bless you. Amen. Please, 